Before we get into this week's episode, I wanted to remind you that my short story is available for free at johntilton.com. If you sign up for my newsletter, I'll send you both the ebook and audiobook of Doomed Dune. In this middle grade adventure, a girl named Melina travels to a forbidden landmark guarded by tyrannical robots, but her life turns upside down when she discovers the true reason it's off limits. Discover Doom Doom Secret by heading over to johntilton.com. That's J-O-N-T-I-L-T-O-N.com. Thanks again, and I hope you enjoy this week's episode. Welcome to Cause of Craft. I'm your host, John Tilton. Why do we create? Where do our ideas come from? What does our craft say about us? These are the ideas we explore here on the show, and this week I'm joined by Fraser Alexander, author of The Lost King. We discuss myths from a Christian perspective, his handwritten manuscripts, and what goes into creating an immersive fantasy map. Welcome to the show, Fraser. Hey, John. Thanks for having me. So what's your earliest memory of writing? Do you, can you remember anything when you were young that you picked up a pencil and started telling stories? Yeah. There's a, a long setup to explain that, so bear with me. But for me, growing up, so I have an older brother who's a year older than me, and we we spend a lot of time when we were younger, probably between you know ages one to six, with an aunt of ours, get this, who is actually a year younger than me. So my grandma <laughs> gave birth to this aunt of mine um, a year after my mother had given birth to me. So this aunt that we spent a lot of time with was really like our cousin, you know. So we we sort of ran around together. This is when we lived in Kansas City. And the big thing that, that the three of us did all the time was movies. And looking back now, I think that most of it was, you know, the grandparents or whoever was watching us putting a movie on to kind of get us to stay out of their hair. Needless to say, they showed us some pretty, pretty cool movies that I don't think a lot of kids will necessarily see in those formative years. So when my brother and I were growing up, you know, my grandpa would put on things like the old Jason and the Argonauts movie from like 1966 with the claymation skeleton army. And, oh yeah, that's you awesome. Know, Clash of the Titans with the, the claymation Ray Harryhausen, Medusa and, and Pegasus and, you know, Perseus. And, and then of course around that time. So around 2001, I would have been, you know, five years old, five or six that was when the first Lord of the Rings movie came out, which was kind of the watershed moment in my life, or at least the what Tolkien would call the baptism of my imagination. Um, that you know, we, my brother and I, were really young, and and of course, not a lot of kids at five probably were shown those Peter Jackson movies, but for some reason, we were we were allowed to watch those, and uh, you know, they were they were just so formative for me. So watching those movies. My, me, my brother, and my aunt Maddie, we became really creative from those. I guess we, I do have early memories at, at my grandparents' house with my brother and Maddie, t- you know, watching movies and, and imagining and playing games, and then taking construction paper or, or, you know, some printer paper and some crowns and colored pencils and just coming up with stories and, and writing them down. Obviously, I, none of those still exist, and I'm sure they weren't very good, but. I can just remember being about six or seven and really just feeling this, uh, this urge to take all the inspiration I was getting from those movies like Clash of the Titans or Lord of the Rings or Jason the Argonauts, Star Wars, and um, just trying to create my own stories. I was never really a reader. I, nobody, I, I can't remember if anybody really read to us or really encouraged that, especially at that age. But Thankfully, the the movies that we were introduced to weren't just kind of sort of like, you know, vapid, stupid stuff. It was it was actually pretty substantial stuff, you know, that had a long history, whether that's the mythological movies or, you know, was was tied up with Christianity or, or some deep moral things like Lord of the Rings were. So, yeah, that I would say and a long answer to your question. That was probably the the earliest memory was was taking those movies and being inspired by them and starting to create our own little fantasy stories. That's great. I love that. Uh, yeah, I know you said that 
you didn't get into books kind of at that age, but did you know that Lord of the Rings was based on books or was this kind of just like, oh, there's this movie that exists and sort of, I mean, it's funny you asked that because it, it's one of those things. I think it's C.S. Lewis who says a myth, a real myth is a story that you feel like you've always known, even though you don't remember the first time ever hearing it or reading it. And in my case, seeing it. And that was kind of how Lord of the Rings was. I, I can't remember a time before or a time when somebody said, hey, this is Lord of the Rings. Here it is, right? It's sort of it's sort of tied up with my earliest memories, which to me is kind of cool because, you know, that it's it almost has the power of like a living myth on my subconscious. But uh, yeah, no, I, I, I think I knew it was a book. My grandpa, I get my my book love from my grandpa. He, he has a huge library in his house. I mean, he, he's kind of, it's kind of shrunk a little bit in his old age, but he, at one time, I mean, I think he had like four, four to 5,000 books in there and he had a separate shelf that was sort of the kid's shelf. But what was funny about that compared to today is that that kid's shelf was loaded with stuff that is way beyond the grasp of kids nowadays. I mean, he had the Silmarillion on there and, you know, his, his, uh, hardback Lord of the Rings and the, the green boxed sort of folio edition of the Hobbit and some other, just some really other cool stuff that most kids today probably wouldn't, wouldn't be, wouldn't be reading. So yeah, I, I, I remember clearly, you know, seeing that sort of green, uh, slipcase edition of the Hobbit that he had, you can still buy a version of it, but, uh, this was the original one, the collector's edition. And, I remember having this memory of like, oh, this is this is Bilbo's book, you know, in the Fellowship of the Ring when Bilbo shows Frodo the the Red Book of Westmarch, which he's he's working on that journal. This is I was like, this is Bilbo's book, and I remember making that connection. So I would say that's that's probably my earliest memory of knowing that 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 Lord of the Rings was literature. So these earlier books that you mentioned, writing before the Lost King. Did those have any similar flavor to it where, because The Lost King, you know, it, you draw a bit on kind of the Lord of the Rings vibes and the myth, mythological sense. Did you have that in those other books too? Was that always something that was core in what you're writing? Yeah. And this is, you know, if we're going to really get into craft here, this is this is a good explanation of this whole process for me. So so again, a long setup here for your question. Uh they did. The short answer is yes, they, they did because the, the basic essence plot wise of the lost King of, uh, a, a prince who has sort of been, uh, exiled or kicked out of his kingdom. The throne has been usurped by somebody and he goes on a journey to either, uh, reclaim his kingdom or find his father, right? That, that basic story um, I have sort of been working on that story since I was about nine or 10. So a lot of those really early stories, sort of pre nine years old, um, they weren't necessarily things I could say I finished. It was a lot of beginnings of stories. So, you know, I'd sit down and kind of come up with some things and, and a lot of those are lost. A lot of those unfortunately didn't really survive. But then about when I was about nine or 10, I really actually started to say, okay, well, I'm going to work on a book, like an actual book. It was pretty ambitious at the time because again, I wasn't really a reader, but I did, I did start to write a story and drew a map for it. And and that basic uh, plot line was there. And then what happened is I worked on that same story for about three or four years. So I started it when I was about nine and I think I finally finished it, got cover to cover when I was about 13. So I was about 13 or 14 and I had, I had a finished book on my hands, but of course, could we go back and read it? And I do still have it. Um, cause that's also when I started to kind of preserve a lot of my manuscripts. It's, you know, very different from the lost King in how that plot played out, but the same, the same element is there. So I did that version of it. And then by the time I was about 14, 15, 16, I rewrote it completely. It was sort of a massive edit that I did, but it was still the same basic story. So I consider that kind of the second iteration of the Lost King theme. 
And then by the time I was a senior in high school into my first year of college, I did what I call the third iteration of the Lost King narrative, which is where the the element of the sea voyage comes in. So um, the story, again, in the third iteration is vastly different from the published Lost King and obviously went under a different title. But from cover to cover, I wrote this book that has that same theme, you know, exiled prince who goes to find his father and reclaim the kingdom. And he goes on this voyage and, and, you know, comes back. And so that was, that was the third version, wrote that cover to cover. That was when I kind of made my first attempts at publishing. And then it really wasn't until uh, about three years ago, about 2017. So this would have been my last year of college. Some of the ideas started to come together about how I could rework that theme into the fourth and final version. And around 2018, started writing that and, you know, had it finished by 2019. And that, that was the published version, probably a longer answer than you wanted. No, that it was super interesting because I actually interviewed another author uh, for an earlier episode. It's funny because you guys describe it differently, but I think it was a very similar process for you. She describes it as being one book rewritten over and over Whereas you kind of look at it as it's almost like a completely new book every time. Mm-hmm. And something that Maggie had mentioned was very similar to you and that I asked her if there was anything that stayed consistent between all of the books or all the iterations of the same book. And she had picked out two things, one of them being this moment in a cave and another being like a lizard person or something like that. Yeah, And it jumped out to me as oh, wait, this is a, you know, these are like mythological things that you're latching onto before you really know what that is. And so there's kind of this similar aspect to your book where you started looking to connect to the father figure, or I forget, you can remind me exactly how you described it. That's, that's interesting, because that's, like you said, another mythological theme that shows up in so many different stories. And so I don't know if like, was there a reason you were latching onto that? Was it something personal or just like something that was deeply rooted in the back of your mind? Yeah. And that's a good question. I've I've often tried to psychoanalyze myself too. And it's, it's difficult to do, you know, I I don't, the, the short answer is I really don't know why that theme stayed with me. But one thing I, I think I can successfully psychoanalyze is that we moved around a lot growing up. So by the time I was going into ninth grade, we had moved about 10 times, often between different states. And so when you do the math on that, it's, it's almost like moving once every two years. So, you know, for me, I, I never really liked that. My, my brother did a little bit more than I did, but it just, for me, it was a kind of, I don't know, soft trauma. <laughs> you know, it was and not, not the worst a kid can go through. Of course, there's, there's much worse out there, but, but for me, it was, it was difficult to make friends at a place, leave them, get uprooted, yeah. go somewhere else and then have the cycle repeat again. And also, as I mentioned, I had a pretty close bond with my grandparents in Kansas city. And, uh, you know, that bond has remained over the years. And if I could look at it from a providential sense, I'm sure it has been strengthened by the fact that we moved a lot. But by the time I was five years old, I was no longer in the in the same city as them. So it, seeing them was, was sort of a thing that only happened a couple times a year. So for me, uh, I, I feel like when I psychoanalyze myself, I feel like the the image of the journey or the, the the story of a journey was something I really connected with. One of those early movies that that stuck with me. It was a little bit later than those first ones I mentioned, but when I was about nine, my grandpa gave me slash showed me the uh, there, there was a, a made for TV version of Homer's Odyssey starring Armand Asante and. And I think still, I mean, it's, it's got some cheesy parts and some, some subpar, you know, graphics and stuff. But for me, it's been the best, one of the best, you know, adaptations of Homer works into film. And, uh, that movie was just, was amazing. The idea of, you know, 
just the, going from place to place. Frodo was like that as well, and Bilbo too. You know, they're especially more so Bilbo when I when I learned the story of the Hobbit via the cartoon version. But you know that that uh, that journey of okay, well, I'm, I have this comfortable home that I like and I love, and I'm I'm being forced out of it, and you know, having to go from place to place on this sort of journey. So that's been the one consistent thing between all the different iterations, I would say is uh, there's sort of a mourning the loss of your home and seeing different places sometimes against your will. <laughs> so if, if I could put it to one, one, one thing that's similar across all the iterations and, and that if I had to connect it to something in my life, I would say that's probably it. So you mentioned, you know, you do kind of your own psychoanalysis there, trying to understand what's happening inside of your brain. I've been interested in that concept. I've been listening to different podcasts about it, as well as reading like Carl Jung and Joseph Campbell's Hero with a Thousand Faces. Mm, yeah. Are, are there, is there material? So I'm always like looking for other things to research. I know you mentioned C.S. Lewis. Is there any books or resources that you've gone to where you found, oh, wow, that, that really helps describe kind of my process? Yes, there's a handful of them. Um, so obviously Campbell's Hero with a Thousand Faces is like, I mean, if you, if you, I think if you're going to write fantasy, because of my beliefs about how fantasy should work, I feel like Campbell's Hero with a Thousand Faces is almost like indispensable. I mean, you, you have to have that book. There is a guy, though, and I would really recommend this to any author of any genre, but particularly fantasy. There's a guy who's sort of taken Campbell's ideas and he sort of distilled them into what I would consider a more readable and palatable guide that is really geared for writers. You know, Campbell was was looking at it from a psychological perspective, the monomyth. Yeah. But this this gentleman I'm referring to is Christopher Vogler or Vogler. I'm not quite sure how to pronounce his last name, but he's got this book called The Writer's Journey. Uh, the subtitle is Mythic Structures for Writers. Uh, that book has been really, really helpful. I mean, he takes Campbell's monomyth, and he's very, very open about his indebtedness to Campbell's work. But it's it's really meant for writers. It's it's a guide to say, okay, here is how you can can take these these uh, common mythological themes, and here's how you can apply them to your story. The great thing about Vogler, and I, I sense a, a kindred spirit with him, is funny enough for a book about writers. He actually spends more time referencing film in the book. So he'll so to to take a concept like um, the mentor figure that come that crops up in in the monomyth, right? For Luke Skywalker, it's Obi Wan Kenobi. Uh, for Frodo, it's Gandalf. When he is introducing that chapter or that theme and that concept, he doesn't spend a lot of time referencing literature. Actually, hardly at all. I mean, he'll reference some of the old myths. But for the most part, he'll reference a really, a really wide array of movies. I mean, like Star Wars and some sort of comedy, like I don't know, Ace Ventura, and he'll reference like an officer and a gentleman with, you know, I think Richard Gere, I think, and you know, he'll just reference like all these different movies, and it, I found that really helpful. So I, I would say, Writer's Journey is is huge. Um, now, obviously, I'm a, I'm a Christian, and so I enjoy Lewis for his theological works, and I think those have helped. And his fiction, but of course, I mean, when it when it comes to understanding patterns of human nature, you know, you can't get any better than the Bible. <laughs> so, like, yeah. you know, realizing that that sort of meta narrative that exists in the Bible, obviously, somebody with a, a Campbellian background would look at that and say, "Well, of course, it's just another it's another outcropping of the monomyth, but it appeared in in ancient Israel, right?" So. However you look at it, that's another, I would say, another indispensable book. The, those themes are, are just everywhere. I mean, I think I had an English teacher once that said, in all of literature, at least English literature, you know, 50% of the references and analogies are to the Bible, and the other 50% of references and analogies go back to Shakespeare. Um, and of course, <laughs> you could probably trace that thread from Shakespeare back to Greek mythology. I mean, I think he references classical literature and mythology all the time in, in any work. So yeah, 
not, again, another long answer, longer than you were probably wanting. No, I, I love it. In fact, it brings up something I, I've been thinking a lot about too, also as a Christian, you know, thinking about these uh, things, especially with like Campbell or Jung, you hear people's perspectives on them. And, you know, there's a lot of debate about, you know, where that comes from. And it's interesting because I think there is this truth to these myths, either way you look at it, you know, either they're baked into us from this kind of evolutionary standpoint where it's, you know, somewhat based on survival or building communities or uh, finding some sort of meaning to life, or you can flip it around where that myth is coming out of us because it's a reflection of Christ dying on the cross for our sins. And it's, it's interesting because uh, I really do think you can look at it both ways. Um, and you and I would say that one of those is true, but really, if you're on either side of that fence, uh, there's value to looking into the myth and trying to understand how those stories come out in writing, but also just in dreams and things like that for, for really anyone. Yeah, no, I, I think you've, you've touched on a good a good point I, I, I would make and I do make um, that as a Christian who is go- going to write a fantasy, it's obviously... If you just if you were to take the fantasy at face value, I mean, even the Lost King, right? There's a lot in there that if you just take it at surface level or face value, there's a lot that would seem antithetical to scripture or theology, right? Because it's it's a it's a fantasy. It's not meant to be consistent with one particular religion at face value, right? There's themes and things, of course. But I would say, you know, throughout history, when people have studied myth, there's been so many different ways to look at it. And I think having an understanding or a healthy appreciation of all of them can really help you. So, you know, there's the, I would say the traditional sort of Christian approach to myth, which is be careful, all those myths are demonic, don't study them, right? And then you have... The Jungian uh, or the psychologist's view of myths, which is, well, none of those things have ever actually happened, and they're not really demonic. They're just reflections of your own psyche. And then you have uh, sort of the ancient pagan view, which is those myths were totally real, and there is such a thing as Zeus and and uh, Hermes and Apollo, and we want to worship them and, and make sacrifices to them, right? And uh, and then there's like an, a, an historical view, which a lot of, I would say, maybe, I don't know, rationalists or realists look at and they'll say, well, you know, these myths uh, contain elements of truths and they're probably sort of like amplified realities. Uh, you know, these were real people that lived and we've sort of uh, embellished their life story over time. And, and it's become, it's added all these sort of fantastical elements. But the best, the best interpretation of myth that I've found as a Christian, I think comes from Tolkien and Lewis in particular, and they say that myths were a way for humanity pre-Christ to sort of have their imaginations baptized and sort of to prepare their imaginations for the fulfillment of all of those myths that would happen in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And I have found that to be extremely helpful. It's uh, it's sort of like, you know, the, the myths came to mankind and sprung from their hearts. Each story is almost like a fraction or a, a broken piece of the whole, right? It's mankind's longing for redemption and for the divine. And I think that's one of the best approaches a Christian can take to it is, you know, they're, they're not all dangerous, right? I mean, some of them can be if you were to worship them in that way, I guess. Um, but they're they're not all dangerous. They do have value in the sense that this is um, clearly mankind longing for the same things, right? The fact that you can find the monomyth across so many different continents means that we're longing for a hero to redeem us. And I, I think I find that, that very powerful and uh, Tolkien said that the story of Jesus and the Gospels is myth become fact. It's true myth. Myth and history met and fused in the life of Jesus, right? His life follows the mythic patterns and he fulfills all of them. But with the rare instance that Jesus actually happened to live, and there's so much evidence that 
he was a real person and we have the the bibliographic evidence and the, the thousands of manuscripts that date within, you know, the first two centuries after Jesus's life. And, and uh, one, one other way to look at it is there's a, there's a scene in Prince Caspian, uh, the Narnia book where towards the end, Lucy and her sister, Susan are with Aslan and Aslan has just awoken sort of all of these, I, I guess you could call them like nature spirits, and they're sort of going to take back Narnia from the oppressive Telmarines. And the, some of these spirits that come out are Roman pagan spirits. There's like Bacchus and Selenus. And, and traditionally in the Greek myths, those were gods of like revelry and drunkenness and partying and wine. And, and uh, I think it's Susan or Lucy, you know, make some comment that, Oh, this is, this is really dangerous that they're here. And, uh, one of them says, "Yes, I would. I would feel. I wouldn't feel as safe if Aslan weren't here with us." Mm-hmm. And I think I've kind of approached mythology like that, like you know, looking backwards in time at the myths through the lens of Jesus, or, or having having the Gospels in your heart or with you. Right? You can you can feel a little safer in a way, or or you can see the the longing in man's heart that, that ultimately I believe gets fulfilled in, in, in Christ. So yeah, I, I don't know if that answers your question. <laughs> I, I love your, I love your insight on that. I'm almost like starving for more things like that because like I said, I'll listen to different resources or read different resources that go into all these things, but they're not from a Christian perspective. And so there's a lot of, you know, extra thinking that I'm doing, you know, which is actually good. It's healthy to do that with anything. And so my mind's always at work and, and I'm always like, oh, I want to hear like, someone else's perspective on this to dive into it from a Christian perspective more. And so to hear your insight, especially with Lewis, is there something specific that you're drawing that from? Or is that kind of like a, I mean, you mentioned Prince Caspian, but I don't know if there's, there's other books that, that they dive into that more specifically. Yeah. And I, it's now that you asked that, I, it's hard to say that there is just one. What I just mentioned was, was such a, it was so, it was such a part of their their lives and, and mm. was so important to their work that it's you sort of see its fingers in everything they write. So yeah, I mean whether and even a lot of the secondary sources, I think what's been helpful to me was I've approached a lot of the secondary sources uh, about like scholarship on Lewis and Tolkien has helped to sort of elucidate those values and, and those concepts. Um, David Day is an author who's written a lot of secondary material on Tolkien and his inspirations. I found David Day to be pretty helpful. He's also on Instagram too. I I followed him and messaged him and and he messaged back. So that was cool to to meet sort of an an author hero that I've been reading since I was like in the fifth grade. And there's a, I mean, there's so many good ones on, on Lewis. It's Gosh, I wouldn't even know where to begin. But but yeah, I would say it's it's sort of in it's sort of in everything they write. Um, but um, particularly when you get a lot of their their letters, been just really helpful in, in sort of understanding their their approach to to myths. I mean, it's 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 all good stuff. But but in particular, I would say if you wanted to know sort of one primary source where you can understand that idea. Lewis does have an essay called Myth Become Fact or Myth Became Fact. Okay. Uh, it is in a book called God in the Dock. It's a collection of different essays that he wrote. And that one essay pretty much summarizes that whole concept. But you can find it in anything they write. Do you have anything else that you want to talk about kind of in that vein? My next question kind of takes us on a whole different track. So I wanted to make sure I wasn't, you know, leaving anything out that was on your mind or pressing. The last inspirational work, I would say, there's well, there's two. So I didn't get to emphasize enough Homer, particularly with The Lost Mm -hmm. King. I mean, Homer came a little bit later in in life, but to really... uh, I mean, the Iliad and the Odyssey have been almost as impactful as the Lord of the Rings, obviously not in a very moral sense. I wouldn't say you can derive a lot of, a lot of really good morals from the Iliad and the Odyssey sort of, I mean, that's a whole nother debate for another, another podcast, but just in the, in the story and the atmosphere and, uh, sort of the getting a getting a sense of that that epic scale, right? That was always something I wanted to capture in my work. 
And then the other inspiration I would, I would recommend for fantasy writers, if they haven't read this person, is Lloyd Alexander, the author of the Perdane Chronicles. Great, great books. I mean, they're definitely more of a middle grade focus. Um, and he, he was about 10 to 15 years behind Lewis and Tolkien. So his book started to come out in the early to mid 60s. But they're great. I mean, if it's it's uh, the Book of Three, the Black Cauldron, the Castle of Lear, Taran Wonder, and the High King. They make up one one series. So I would I would say for anybody wanting some fan- fantasy that's that's more in the vein of Tolkien and Lewis, and, and wanting to read some other inspirational works for me, that was it would definitely be Lloyd Alexander. Again, I really appreciate all those resources. Um, I'm going to be jotting them all down when I go through the episode yeah. and checking them out. Again, to change tracks a little bit here, although I'm sure some of this will cross over still, one of the the things that really stood out about you to me was all these pictures you've taken of kind of your handwritten manuscripts. Are those full handwritten manuscripts or do you write sections? Like, Just talk a little bit more about that, I yeah. guess. So because I write fantasy, there's always going to be two different types of uh, manuscripts out there. So there's the actual drafts of the novels that I'm trying to publish. And then there's stuff that I would call like legendarium material or mythology or backstory. So I've always kind of got this corpus of work going on that's constantly changing that is sort of my equivalent to the Silmarillion, right, that, that Tolkien had. So a lot of the pictures on my social media, I believe, are of sort of that body of work that I would classify as sort of the, the, the myths behind the novels, that overarching mythology that, that I've been working on forever. Those, it's not material that's really published or I, I just don't know if it will ever be published. I hope it will. But um, no, that, that's sort of the mythology, mythological stuff. I'll do a lot of rewritings of some of those and, and anyway. But I do, I do also handwrite drafts. But it, it's, it's different for my novels. Like it, it's just different from novel to novel. So for The Lost King, it's just weird. I mean, and this is the first time this happened. I mean, I, I sat down and pretty much just wrote out The Lost King by hand. I mean, that was in a journal and ha- and then had to have some subsequent journals because I filled that first one up. And I, I mean, that was the first time that had ever really happened because prior to that, when I would write, it was sort of an amalgamation of like handwritten stuff and some typed stuff. It was, it was really messy. But then, you know, the, one of the, the books I'm working on right now, I'm having to rely on a lot of older drafts of stuff I've written before and so a lot of the work right now is being done on the computer. And I find that easier because it's a lot of, I'm, I'm reworking a lot of stuff that I've already typed. And so it would be sort of redundant and not very efficient to go back and write it all out by hand. Interesting. Okay. So, so a mix of both that you, you do, it's just astounding to me that you wrote an entire draft by hand. I'm just like my hands sore thinking about it. <laughs> yeah. But, but it's funny because I will when I get stuck writing, I will I will reach for pen and paper and just like write dialogue or write little snippets of things. It kind yep. of frees me from I mean, funny enough, on the computer you can backspace, delete, like change anything. Yeah, I mean you can white it out or cross it out, but it's there's something more permanent about, you know, the pen and paper. Yeah. But at the same time, it's like because it's not in the official document, it's in like a notepad. Yep. My brain is like, oh, don't worry about it. Just like write stuff out. And a lot of times that's how I get my creativity back flowing. Yeah. Um, oh, sorry. I, w- I was just going to say that you, what you what you mentioned you do is something I totally do. And I would recommend every author do, which is in the process of sort of like thinking through or planning a novel, I'll usually have a journal going you, you called it like snippets and that's exactly what I write too. It's like anytime you get an idea for something, I might flesh it out as a poem or the beginning of a book or sort of in like a fairy tale style. And I'll just sort of, it's, it's almost like a scrap journal. Like you've just got so many bits and pieces of things and it's all random. And um, what was awesome with the lost King is I, I had this sort of journal going a few years before I wrote the lost King of some of those snippets. And it was, it was all fantasy type stuff. And I just was I just never knew how I was going to use it, but I knew it was stuff I needed to write down. And then as I was writing the lost King, 
there were about, there were a lot of instances where I was writing, 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 and then I'd get to this point and realize, oh, this is a perfect place for that one snippet I wrote in the journal. Mm. And so I'd be able to go back and actually pull that and almost plug it in perfectly and, you know, change a few things. And that happened so many times. So those snippets that you do and those random things you write down, keep them because they, they, they will circle back, you know, they'll, they'll come back into, into your other writing and you will find a, a way to plug them back in. It, it just may take a few years. Yeah. I've noticed that. And it's interesting how the mind, it, it's interesting how the mind is almost at work in, you know, you mentioned it can come in a, in a whole different story, but I've noticed, I, I guess I haven't written as many stories as you so far, but I've noticed that just little ideas that I've had will come back into it or kind of in a similar vein, there will be random stuff that was in the story that just feels like minor details. And then when I get closer to the end of the novel, I realize, oh, wait a second, this idea fits perfect. Like this seemingly unimportant idea actually fits into it. So it's just, it's, it's crazy to me how, how there's just something in our minds that is, that subconscious is almost writing a lot of the book and it's almost our conscious mind trying to unlock it. Like it feel I don't know if that's what it is, but it feels like that a lot of times. Yeah. Oh, you're spot on. Yeah, I agree. So getting back into the handwriting. So when you wrote a draft of The Lost King handwritten, is that kind of just flowing out of you like that? Or are you stopping a lot and thinking like, like how, how I guess, how does that differ from if you were just starting to type a draft on a computer? Like, like what's the big difference that you feel? Um, I feel like I don't, I feel like I don't go to the computer unless I'm definitely in an editing mindset. So like the, the, the book I'm working on right now, it is basically another iteration to use that, that terminology again of a story that I've already written before. So it's, it's following the pattern of the lost King did with the exception that this iteration is not, it's not going to be totally different from what I wrote before. Not so much so that I need that I feel the need to write everything out again by hand. So, so I'm doing a lot of like uh, tweaking here and there to the original draft on the computer. Um, but with with handwriting, it it did all sort of come at once. I don't. I, I very rarely will begin in my mind what I feel as a novel if I haven't done a lot of planning and thinking and sort of mulling things over. So that was the way with Lost King. I, I have a lot of journals where prior, like the year before actually beginning the Lost King, I can see looking back now that I was getting the ideas out, sort of trying to figure out what the overarching story was going to be, thinking about the characters, what their names were going to be. I mean, if I don't have the names, it's really hard to write. So so just things like that. So yeah, I, I, I didn't sort of begin the Lost King not knowing where it was going to go. When I sat down pen to paper and was like, okay, I'm going to start writing this. I pretty much knew where the story was. There's little details that change as you write, but, but no, I I feel like I have to plan a lot. It's a, it's a very messy planning, but, um, but no, sitting down to, to write that draft, I, I felt like I had done most of the thinking I needed to do and the planning so that I could just write the whole thing out. Another thing I've seen from you with The Lost King is these maps. Is that also, you're doing that by yourself and also by hand? Yeah, so those are all hand-drawn. Um, and I still, man, I, I wish the publisher and I could have come to some agreement about getting those in the books. That's honestly, I'm thankful for this, but I'm not. But one of the biggest complaints that I get about the book often is not so much the writing. Um, it's, thankfully, it's the the lack of maps and like a confusion with the geography of the book. And so, yeah, I, I really tried to get maps in the book and, and I had made these, these two hand-drawn maps and it needed to, because, you know, I, I just had this real epic ambition. I mentioned that, you know, getting that ambition from Homer, um, it was going to require a big geography. And, and so, so yeah, I have these two maps that I drew and Taranis is sort of the main country that, the story takes place in, but Antarinus is pretty much Atlantis for, you know, it's just that this is sort of the ancient version of the name and the, 
there's this idea that's never really stated that that Antaranus over time, as the name gets corrupted, becomes in ancient Greek the word Atlantis, right? Oh, yeah. So um, so it's it's this sort of big continent that sits in the middle of the ocean, and it's got some some other land masses on either side of it, and some some islands scattered throughout those seas. And so yeah, I, I drew those by hand, and just to to mention planning, I mean I I had the geography done before I started writing the book. So all of that geography was planned and years in advance. I mean, I, I started because, because I was already working on the mythology behind the lost King before I wrote the lost King, that geography was already in place. And so it was really cool to kind of do that. Like Tolkien did where by the time I felt like I was going to the lost King, writing the story and having it take place in that geographical world some of those places that the characters were going to already had history in my mind. It was really neat. It was one of those rare moments where you you start to kind of understand Tolkien from the inside, you know, not, not so much from the outside, that you, you do get that sense that, that it is real because you're approaching this place as you're writing the story. They're going to this island, right, that in your mind has a long history already and you know the myths and the stories and the things that have occurred mm-hmm. at that place even though you're not going to mention those at all in the lost king because they don't pertain to it at all but it's it's got it's got history and depth to it so it, i don't know it's it's it was very neat I, I still haven't quite processed it yeah and it's it's cool that level of detail that you have in there uh, i especially like that what you mentioned about the corruption of the name becoming atlantis like that's just that's a really cool idea in general and so so you mentioned you drew all these ahead of time and then are writing the story as something that takes place in this land that you drew. I guess, can you walk me through the process of like, are you thinking of little mini stories that become the myths of these lands and then building the map? Are you building the map first and filling in? Like, like, I guess I've never even like the only (laughs) map I've kind of scribbled a map down for one of my books. And it's just like, so I am describing things properly. So it's very like, yeah, a utility for me, at least right now. Um, I hope to kind of expand that later. Yeah, but I just would love to hear kind of your process behind that. No, I mean, it's, I have to I have to compare to Tolkien again. So Tolkien is famous for saying that before he can write a story, he has to have the names. And so for Tolkien, there was this sort of pleasure and necessity to create all these names first. And because he knew the etymological meaning behind the names, that was where the story would come from, was to sort of explain why this person is named this, right? And so I feel kind of the same way with the maps. So this, again, connects to some of the earlier backstory I was giving you about my life. So one of the things that, again, drew me to that that sort of like tactile obsession I had with the Lord of the Rings, just as physical books were the maps, right? I mean, I don't think anybody has ever thought that Tolkien's maps were not cool. I mean, they're, they're just, they're so cool. You just, you, you feel them and you can fold them out and the geography's so interesting and it's got these exotic names and it, it, so, so for me, that was a real pleasure. And I would, one of the things I would do, I think simultaneously with coming up with stories is I used to just come up with a bunch of maps. So um, I have most of them saved in tubs, kind of locked away in storage, but I have so many, probably in the hundreds, of just maps of places I made up that are all, you know, kind of fantasy worlds that are similar to what I've got. And so for me, what was essential was creating maps first uh, because the, the maps, and, and people have described Tolkien's map this way, the maps and the land become a kind of character in a way, right? So they, so that's mm-hmm. it's just as important to me as fleshing out the main character is making sure that 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 geography and that place is is, is as real as possible. So, so yeah, no, for for me, the I definitely can can say with confidence that the map was definitely primary before ever writing the story that went along with it. So, for some people, it's different, right? The the they have this great story and then the map is totally dependent on that story, meaning that they will change drastically the geography for the story. Um, whereas for me, it was almost the opposite. 
which is again, another interesting lesson and craft is I was, I was crafting a story based on the geography that was already in place in my mind. So to me, it was a, it was a fixed thing, right? So like those continents that are on the other sides, you know, east and west of Antarnas, for me, I had to make a story that fit within that geography. And so the journey that, that Thalos, the main character goes on, had to fit in that geography. That's cool. It kind of reminds me of how there's two different, you know, people talk about the scale of like, there's the planners and there's the pantsers. To me, it's never like completely one or the other. I feel like there's always some sort of balance there. Yeah. But it sounds like at least from the map making perspective, you'd be in the planner category. Does that also translate to your writing perspective or are you, or is it different for you when you're actually writing the story as you go on? No, no, there's no seat of the pants with story writing. I, yes. I have to, I have to plan everything and in a, but it's broad strokes, right? Like that, okay. and that, that's for me how I do it. So it's, it's like planning in broad strokes. And then when I get down to actually fleshing that out in the details, there's a lot of, uh, um, impromptu stuff or, or, uh, you know, improvisation that goes on as you, as you're going. And so for me, that, that's just the, the method I found that works. Everybody's got a different process, you know, from, so for me, I, I have to know, I have to know how it's going to end. You know, I just, I can't, yeah. I can't write something if I, if there's no direction. I'm similar in that, like the way you describe yourself, it makes me sound like, wow, you're like, 10 million times more planner than I am. But then, no. <laughs> but then as you, as you described it, it's like, yeah, kind of when I go into a story, I do have to have the ending in mind. Like I have to know thematically what I'm trying to say or get across or what journey the characters are going to go through. I have to know all that. But then, uh, like you said, kind of, there's some improvisation it, scene to scene and sometimes that can get a little nuts because something will come out that I'm like, oh, this is like, they're like there's something here and now I have to figure out how it fits into the broader picture or if I have to, you know, slightly change the broader picture, which has happened to me too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I'm glad you mentioned theme. That's the other thing I feel like I have to know beforehand because, and I, and I learned this actually because I was interested in theater in high school and college. I actually learned this from, uh, was it, I'm trying to remember the title of the class. It had to do with analyzing uh, plays, play scripts, but I don't, I can't remember if it was actual, it wasn't a writing class, like how to write scripts. It was just sort of analyzing them and how they're structured. And so that was one of the big things that, that was sort of, it's a, in the world of theater and, and writing plays, playwrights are taught, you, you have to know the theme, everything that the people say in that, in that script. And of course with a play, it's all dialogue. And so that's, that's, that's of the utmost importance, Right. So everything anybody says is derived from the theme. And so the playwright has to know that theme. Mm. They have to have it down before they write. And I, I feel that was, that definitely was, was how the lost King came together was, was a theme in place and the geography and the, and the overarching story. And then once I had all of that, I was, I could write. When you were interested in plays and theater, did you participate in that? Like, were you acting? Or? Oh, yeah. That was one of the ways that, that movies inspired me, too. So I, I did start to write stories early on, and I felt like it would be great to write a book. That was sort of an ambition I had. But then simultaneously, because I, was, I loved all these movies, I thought how great it would be to become an actor and, and be in movies and things, which those goals have definitely changed a lot now. But no, I did a lot of theater in high school and and really loved it. I mean, and I was able to star in a couple plays in high school and it was fun. I got to be uh, Wyatt Earp in a, a sort of competitive one act play version of Tombstone. I got to play the Scarecrow in a, in a performance of the Wizard of Oz and we, we did Hairspray and a couple other things, you know, and, and some minor fun, things yeah. as well. But yeah, it was a lot of fun. It was, you, I, I learned a lot about story and character from that, I think. That's, that's translated into writing fiction. It's funny you say story and character first, because my first thought was, oh, I bet that helped you with dialogue. Like, um, <laughs> like as you're the actor, taking how you would perform it and putting that on the page in a sense, you know? Yeah, I know. It's interesting. I, I don't know. For me, it's it's more of a representation. It, it helps with di with uh, with character and story, I would say. because Interesting. Okay. The, I don't know. I guess in theater, you know, that like I mentioned, it, the speech is never 
most of the time meant to be realistic. It's okay. It's a it's a contrived form of speech that is meant to reflect the character's uh, traits and their objective, and it's meant to reflect the theme. You know, most most dialogue. Now, there's some sort of ultra realistic plays out there where they really try to make it super real. Um, it's realism, right? But, um, but yeah, no, I, I would say it's, it's always, con- it's always contrived in some way. It's, n- it's never, it's never quite realistic. And that, and that goes back to antiquity too, right? I mean, the dialect that Homer's epics were written in, nobody ever spoke that. I mean, that's one of the things about ancient mm-hmm. epics. It's not, it's not everyday speech. It's sort of a heightened poetic language. And I think that all, all dialogue in some sense has that element to it. I like that. Um, I I haven't really thought, like I think about dialogue and thinking about my own dialogue and, you know, I always, I hear it in my head. Again, a lot of those snippets that I write, it's coming out in dialogue that I'm hearing from the characters. Yeah. But I've never really thought about how, kind of this that hyper realistic dialogue that can i'm sure there's there's movies and it's not just plays but there's like it's almost like a certain aesthetic like yeah yeah. auditory aesthetic that people choose to either utilize or not utilize yeah it's got varying degrees right there's some that's on the more realistic side that is a lot closer to real speech and then there's some that's you know shakespearean almost where it's like okay this is not real speech but you know, it, it has its a sense of believability to it. Yeah, and it, I think it also something like that would add sort of a layer of it would make it as if it's grandiose, and you know, yeah. it's it's something like it kind of plays into the mythology idea. Yeah, but I don't know. I think I think kind of modern modern sensibilities would stray more away from that. It, yeah. Maybe just because it's not like you know, it just feels like it's of of an older time. So unless you're going for that. Yeah, uh, it feels like most people aren't really latching on to maybe some of the benefits that are there. No, yeah, I mean, it, you do see a lot of contemporary fantasy where the the dialogue is very colloquial and the idiom is very much modern. And I just I don't know how I feel about that. Everybody's different, everybody's entitled to their own opinion, but in my in my opinion, when you're creating something that's meant to be a fantasy world that is meant to be Either it's meant to either be in actual antiquity, like the Lost King is, or it's a sort of pseudo antiquity or pseudo Middle Ages. When the when the idiom and the 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 modes of the speech are very colloquial to twenty twenty one America, you know they're they're very much pulled from twenty twenty one America American English. It, it to me it draws me out of the story, but yeah, but that's just me. I mean. For some, some people look at it as a kind of translation, right? So to get very philosophical, uh-huh. they would say, well, of course, in this fantasy novel, they had to write it in our modern idiom because it's almost like it's a translation of what they were really saying in the world of the story. So obviously, Tolkien and Lewis and these other people we've been mentioning have been big inspirations for you. In some ways, when it's like that, it's like, oh, you're almost like taking you know, a class from them. And it's like, you're learning directly from them and you're kind of subscribing to a lot of what they say. Do you ever have instances where, you know, maybe right away or maybe after you mull, mull something over for a while, you're like, wait a second, I, I feel like I, I want to challenge a uh, perception they have about a certain aspect of, of their approach to world building or writing in general. Yeah. Um, I'll be quite honest with you. I've, there's a, <laughs> There's a ten, there's a sense in me a tendency where, you know, what what Tolkien and Lewis have said about fantasy and about the creation of fantasy is almost, it's almost like looked at as gospel, <laughs> and uh, which is, I would say, might not be the best way to approach it because you know you want to keep an open mind, but I just it's it's hard to when they were so successful at at creating fantasy to really read their ideas about how it's created. And then for me to challenge those ideas, I just, I think they hold up. Maybe I just have a deference to them where I I understand that they were vastly more well-read than I could ever hope to be 
I mean, and, and probably forgot more in their lifetime that I can ever, ever learn. And I think when it comes down to a lot of the fundamentals of writing and English and language, I mean, those guys were just light years ahead of us. I mean, they were, they were, they knew multiple languages and could speak them fluently. And they, they were so versed in English language and, and etymology and syntax. And I mean, yes, yeah, so from a, from a fundamental standpoint or a linguistic standpoint, it's been hard to challenge them. I would say the only thing you can sort of differ with them on, I don't differ with them on their philosophy or feel the need to, to sort of challenge their philosophy to fantasy and fiction. In fact, I, I, I sort of, hold it up as the, the ultimate philosophy towards fantasy. But um, from a technical standpoint, as far as how you write a novel, I think it's hard to, you can't like, like if, if Lewis was never famous and he took the Chronicles of Narnia as they are now, like those, the, the versions that we have now. And if he tried to publish those today, I mean, the publishers would throw a fit and nobody would, I mean, it's same thing with Lord of the Rings, right? Like, like from a technical standpoint, they're not, they're not written in a way that would pass in today's market because of, I mean, just even in, in, in the sense of like, like passive voice, right? This was something I found I had learned from them too much, right? Like they tend to use too much passive voice and that, that, worked its way into my own writing. And so when I got the lost King back from the editor, one of the biggest red marks on there was just passive voice, passive voice, passive voice. And so I had to spend hours and hours going through and changing passive voice to active voice where it needed to be. So I don't know. I, I, again, another long answer to your question, but yeah, if you, if you, um, there's sort of these authoritative people in my life when it comes to writing, I would say wholesale. I, I don't, accept everything they believe or reject everything they believe. But when you break it down into different categories, right, the philosophical, the technical, the linguistic, um, I think that's where then you can either wholeheartedly agree or wholesale agree or, or disagree on certain things. I hope that makes sense. It does make sense. And yeah, it's, it's difficult to know if those, you know, you met, you imagine them giving it to an editor today and it's, it's it is difficult to imagine if a lot of that is just from the time period they're writing in, or even if readers today respond to uh, a different way of writing better, and that's kind of what's been proven, or if it's actually better. It's it's an interesting concept, especially because, like you said, you know they've established so much. Like th- like there's so much working for them in, in other levels. People are responding to Lewis and Tolkien today, like when yeah. they reread it, and so there's something there that's deeply rooted that we respond to. Oh yeah, and so I I definitely think that like writing on a good technical level. And I do really believe in, you know, using active voice instead of passive voice when possible. Uh, But at the end of the day, really what I think sells the book and what readers respond to is something that's a little bit deeper. Now, now if you have technical issues that can get in the way and throw someone out of it. True. But I think that if we were to analyze kind of the books that have seen a lot of good response to it. It's not necessarily how the prose is written versus kind of the underlying, like what's going on, like thematically, or, you know, a lot of these myth things that we've been talking about. It's how people respond to kind of that root layer. Oh yeah. And the the technical thing is there for, you know, to help people be able to read it. Yeah. But what sticks with people, you know, sometimes it's the prose, but but I think it's something that's deeper than that. Oh, and, and I'm so glad you said that because you've kind of helped me sort of grasp my whole approach to writing in general. So since this is a podcast about craft, right, I would have to say, and I'm sure that there are creative writing teachers just cringing out there if they could hear this. I am, I am on board with you. And I would say that that, is, that has been the theme of my writing that I have placed more, more importance, I would say, on the thematic material over the technical, because I, I believe that's true. I believe that if I had to choose one book on writing to give to somebody and it came down to 
you know, some sort of like writer's digest technical book, right? Versus the Christopher Vogler book, Writer's Journey, or even Campbell's Hero with a Thousand Faces. I would much rather give somebody Campbell or Vogler and say, read this. It will, it will do more for you because I mean, you're absolutely spot on. I mean, I would say that's been the theme of my, my whole approach to writing and maybe why I plan so much with theme and the overarching story before I even begin to write is that to me, those things are, are way more important, right? So that the concept of the lost King is, has been more important than how well I used active voice. Um, you do have to train in those technical areas, but I think if you can get a better understanding of theme and the message, uh, I think that that's, that sticks with people longer. Yeah. And I think the technicalities that can be, be learned on the fly as well. Like you said, you're yes. getting these notes back from the editor. Well, if you had notes about uh, like the thematics weren't working, then that's going to, you know, you're needing to rewrite like the entire thing Yeah. versus, you know, okay, I can take what's already there and, you know, polish it up with better prose yeah. based on kind of what they're asking of me. Yeah, exactly, man. Those are all, we hit all the big topics that I, I've really felt that we could have a discussion about. And, yeah. um, but I don't know if there's, there's anything else you want to, uh, you want to leave people with or, or anything that has been coming to mind that we haven't really touched on specifically yet? No, I, I think this was fun. I think we got to talk about why I write and how I do it. And uh, I would I would tell people what I learned too, which is no one person's got the right method. You know, everybody's got their own method. And I know that people, you know, race to bookstores to buy Stephen King's on writing because Stephen King is famous, but you know, you don't have to do everything that Stephen King does to be a successful writer because everybody's different. Everybody's got their, their method and their, their path to getting a book out there and, and how they want to write one. So I would say, you know, what we talked about was my method. And, and of course I write epic fantasy. So there's going to be this attention more so to the old myths and mythology and things like that. But everybody's got their own method. But I would say if there's, if there's one advice I could piece of advice I could leave, it's, you know, stick to your own method and, you know, learn from a lot of different people. And I would say at, at some point, you know, brush up on a book like Campbell's hero with a thousand faces or, or Vogler's the writer's journey just just even one read through right just just to get a grasp of sort of those mythic uh beats to a story that humans respond to so whether you're writing fantasy or romance or a western or espionage right um people people do respond to those sort of story beats and rhythms that we have traditionally included in stories for thousands of years yeah i really agree with that advice um especially thinking about the i've read on writing as well and uh, it, it's a great book, especially, I, I always like when it's like a little bit of a memoir approach, yeah. uh, to, to learn a little bit more about the author, but exactly what you said is what I would advise people with too. When people ask me about different books that I found helpful, I always mention the ones that I found helpful, but then I always say something along the lines of what you said in that it's, it's almost like it's either more helpful to read zero books on on like how to write or how to do, you know, whatever art that you're into uh, or read like a ton and then pick out the gems that are responding to you because everyone approaches. And, and one of the reasons I want to do the podcast is because everyone approaches creation in a kind of different way. Like yeah. even, you know, we were talking about the kind of spectrum of writers with the planners and the pantsers. Uh, there's that, but in, like a million different categories yeah. and then you take that and it's a, across a million different disciplines. And so, uh, you know, we're both authors, but, um, but that's also one of the reasons I want to get a bunch of different perspectives, not just on people who write, but yeah. people who paint and, and other things like this too, yeah. because, um, there's something about creating something that 
is unique, even if you don't have the same craft as someone, there might be a gem of information there that you can use to help inspire your own creative work. So it was it was great talking with you. I, I know I learned a whole lot. I, I appreciate you having me on here, John. This was a lot of fun, and and uh, I'm flattered and honored. And and this was this was great. I mean, everybody loves talking about themselves, right? So uh, you just let me let me talk about myself for a long yeah. time. So I do appreciate it, man. I think this is this is an awesome idea for a podcast and. I think people are going to benefit from it. I plan to as well, just to go back and, and listen to some of the different authors you're interviewing and, and learn from them. So yeah, I'm, I'm very honored that you had me on here. Thanks for listening to this episode of Cause of Craft. To read Fraser's book, search The Lost King on Amazon or visit FraserAlexander.com. There you'll also find his gorgeous hand-drawn maps as well as samples of his handwritten notes. In the show notes, I'll have links to his website, Instagram, and all the books we discussed. Hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode and follow Cause of Craft on Instagram for the latest news and updates. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Those reviews will help more people discover the show. And if you have feedback, suggestions, or guest recommendations, send an email to john at causeofcraft.com. That's J-O-N at causeofcraft.com. Thanks for listening and see you next week.